Hello and welcome. It's Monday morning here at EarSports.com. Mike Casaza over in the corner, opening up the gigantic mailbag of questions we have after Saturday's loss is Chris Anderson. Chris, the mood has been good. Obviously, back-to-back wins, three and one. Entertaining thoughts of climbing over a couple of warm bodies to get to the top of the Big 12 if all things go right. That didn't go right on Saturday. How West Virginia is one of the warm bodies that people are climbing over. And the mood has changed, but the interest is still high. What's the difference in the temperature right now? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I was about to say cold cold and frigid because everybody's upset. Or maybe it's red hot because everybody's angry. Um, everybody's mm-hmm. Everybody's got questions. Maybe it's foggy. I don't know. What it, how, how, that's not temperature, but uh, sticking with the weather theme here, foggy because I think everybody's confused. And I think uh, the mailbag depicts that. Uh, based on, on some of the questions they have. And one really good one, and we'll get to it, and maybe even end with it, just flat-out confusion about what's going on. So it's 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 an interesting time. I think the, the next week, there are a lot of questions, and the next couple of weeks are going to give us lots of answers, but we're going to try our best to give them to you today. So 5.30 game, unusual time, but it lets you watch full games before and, and darn near full games after, too. Like, if you stay over late once, but you could certainly get in a noon game and some of a 3.30 game. Did football look different, easier, um, more effective in some of those early games to you? Has it been that case during the season? Like, we've had a chance to watch some extra games because they started at noon, so you can get, like, the late games in. Two off weeks, you can watch some other games. And, again, that weird time, Saturday, you got in the early window. Was it? Do you see differences? you see teams that are able to do things better, easier, quicker, less chaotically than West Virginia? Yeah, I think uh, it feels like, most everything West Virginia is doing is is a struggle. Like they're fighting just to get done what they want to get done. So I, I do think um, I do think there's a difference in what you're seeing between you know again from some of the better teams and what you're seeing from West Virginia right now. It blended in a little bit to some of the the Mountain West and Big Ten action I saw, but it, I saw some SEC games and some American games, and like just just watching RPO stuff for example quick rip and let it go and then your completion 12 yards easy um play action stuff transition from you know a 30 yard gain to a first and 10 snap it all seemed very smooth and i'm I'm realizing here that what am i talking about i'm talking about two conferences that just started playing and are making mistakes that seem like they overlap with what i'm watching with west virginia and then teams that have played five six games now have ironed it out i know brown talked about how difficult the season was going to be because of preparation you're going to have some sloppiness I just don't think his team is quite out of the muck yet, whereas so it looks like some other teams are are one or two steps beyond that. That's that's kind of kind of concerning. That's actually probably not even the right way to say it. That is concerning because, listen, there is a way to explain some of these mistakes and, and not blame it on, but to say that it's sloppy right now. But when people are your peers and they're making fewer, it does kind of heighten the uh, alarm, I think, with what we're seeing. Yeah. Uh, again, the... Mistakes seem to be repetitive. They are going week to week. Uh, the problems, you know, over and over and over again with that. And, and a lot of the reasons that West Virginia is losing. And, you know, fans say this all the time. It's, oh, man, uh, you know, if, quote, unquote, we hadn't screwed that up, we would have won the game. And 
you know, it, it, sometimes it's the other team just does a good job. And Texas Tech did a lot of good things on Saturday. But again, West Virginia shot themselves in, a foot, in the foot a lot, which is something they've done a lot all year long. Agreed. So hmm. Saturday noon, Halloween. I love a Halloween home game. I wish it was a night. I understand why it's not. But Kansas State, I think that's the best and also worst possible opponent for West Virginia. Reason being, um, listen, they're they're not going to come down to your level. Um, they're going to be happy to sit there and watch you hurt yourself. And then when you're done, they're going to come over and and then they're going to they're going to tap the loose dirt with their shovel and do something that just kind of puts it out of reach. That's been their thumbnail or their thumb, yeah, their thumbnail description for a long, long time. They changed coaches. They've had some down years, but the new coach looks like he's really good. They are what they did forever. Two touchdowns on special teams last week. They have four non-offensive touchdowns in the last two weeks. They're they're just good. Um, that could be bad news for West Virginia, but if this team is going to get out of the muck and if they have to focus on little things, discipline, details, the margins. Listen, if you don't get that together for Kansas State after a loss, you're probably not going to get it together. So, again, the worst because they can make you pay the best because it's never more important than it is right now. Um, and oddly enough, were you surprised by this? They're favored at home against the undefeated first-place team in the conference. Stunned. Um, Stunned? Uh, yeah, I, I'll be honest. I So, for those who don't know, you know, obviously we are part of 24-7 Sports. Ear Sports is part of 24-7 Sports, which is part of CBS Sports. CBS Sports has a partnership with William Hill Sportsbook. And we're still, I'm me, I don't want to say we, I don't want to lump you in here, but I'm still kind of getting used to their book. Uh, it's not something I had used in the past. Uh, me checking up on lines and, and seeing when they come out, where how to read them and stuff. Uh, their, their app looks a little bit different to me. So I, was, I saw it and I thought, well, surely that's not correct. I'm screwing this up. So I go and I check another sports book. Yep. And another, yep, and another, yep. Okay, every every single one uh, is opening. I mean, now, Circa, I think, for those who don't follow gambling closely, their thing, Circa's thing is to always be first in releasing lines as far as, uh, you know, United States-based books go. So their lines are almost always different than everybody else's. Uh, they kind of put it out there, and then they quickly adjust as everybody else releases their lines. They open with West Virginia as a five-point favorite Ooh. in that game. A five-point. They they open with West Virginia as a five-point favorite and the over/under at forty-two and a half. I think um, most everyone else was at three and a half and about fifty points for the game. Um, My goodness. So I don't know. I honestly, you know, on Sunday nights I also swap Q and A with our, the opposing writer for for our sister sites on the network. And I reached out to Tim Fitzgerald and I was like, you know, here are my five questions. And, and one of them was West Virginia's three and a half point favorite. Tell me why. And I, I'm kind of excited to see his answer, to get his perspective on that. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Um, yeah. It's strange, but I don't think it would be stunning if West Virginia beat Kansas State. Kansas State has... Kansas State's not going to overwhelm you with their talent and their speed on, on offense. They're just going to—they're going to thousand paper cuts you if you play their game. Important not to play their game. Um, let's play our game, Chris. Every Monday yeah. we do this. Solicit questions after the game. Everybody's bent out of shape or high in the sky after a win. Sleep on it. Let your emotions settle. 
ask us some questions on Sunday, and we come back, answer our subscriber questions on Monday morning. Uh, extremely popular. Away we go. You want to start us off? Yeah, I'll get it started. Um, I, I think, again, we got some overlap, so I might combine some of these. Um, but uh, in general, let's begin with the the Letty Brown, Alex Infield question. Uh, this one comes from SJJSWVU4. Is the difference in production between Singfield and Letty as simple as Letty is just flat out that much better question? Or does it go beyond that and maybe their styles aren't complementary to each other in this offense? Or is there something else in your opinion that is causing such a big discrepancy in production? I yield the floor to the Alex Singfield homer. Yeah, listen, that's my guy. I've been on I've been on board with him for a long, long time. I think it's unfortunate he got hurt right when he got going against Youngstown State in his redshirt freshman year. And he had ankle injuries last year and got moved around. Um, and again, not because he was bad, because they were trying to get him in. He wasn't going to crack the rotation. I think that's using negatively against him sometimes that, oh, man, he was moved to receiver. He wasn't playing in front of the three guys, and he was good enough with the ball in his hand. Yeah, I think he's not as good as Brown. I think that's easy to see. Brown's just a bigger, better runner. Um, I think Sinkfield's last 20 carries have gone for, no, 22 carries for 28 yards. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, it's something, something like that. that. It's range, not a great, yeah. not a great st- uh, number there. Yeah, 20 carries, 29 yards in the past two games. That coincides with we need to get the ball to Sinkfield more. He's not receiving. He's not being targeted. I think that's a better part of his game. I'm not sure he's a traditional handed to him running back. And what, what caught my attention was the Brown said earlier in the season, Neil Brown, of course, Listen, I don't, I don't change the plays or the philosophy when we put the running back in. Is that a problem? Maybe. I'm also not cool with giving him the ball on third and three and asking him to stretch it outside and run. Um, he has run the ball, looks like, eight times on third down this year, on third and short, no less. Not even just on third down, but on third and shorts. We're talking five or less. He's gotten three first downs. He's missed five times. Um how much of that is you're gonna you're gonna go for another fourth down? I can't tell you that for sure. I don't the stats aren't that advanced, but I don't like him getting the ball on third down, especially in those you know intermediate and shorts. Because what's Brown's thing? Letty Brown's. He's gonna move forward. He's gonna get hit. and He's gonna break a tackle and get you some more yardage. I like that more on third down. Um, Brown's a more valuable player, Letty Brown, and the fact that he's receiving the ball like he is as frequently and as easily, I think negates the need for Singfield. Trouble is, you can't play Letty Brown the whole game. He knows that because he begged out of the game a couple times, and they don't have a third running back right now. Um, Sinkfield, uh, it was, I think it was the Eastern Kentucky game and I get the opponent, but even if he did this against air and it was practically against air, it, you could see his potential, like his, his sidestep and then right back into full speed. He did it, I think two or three times in that game. And it was, it was like, I, that, that's what, that's what the coaches see. That's what they want out there. That's the potential. Holy cow. And I am not sure we've seen or I have seen his cut like that since. You know, he's had a couple nice runs. He had that big run. What was that? The one against Baylor, I believe, where he he busted it outside up the right sideline that proved to be a crucial play. But that whole sidestep and then accelerating back to top speed in just a couple steps, that's something he's capable of doing that I don't think Letty Brown can do. Yet... I'm not sure we've seen it except for like two times all year. Um, and both of them came in the first week. So it's. 
he's a he's a guy you just you have to put in the right situations. I think, and what I mean by that is too like everybody was happy with him after Baylor. What do you think his stats were for Baylor? Uh, that was that was the height of Stinkfield this season, right? Right. Yeah. And I think it was almost entirely off of that that one run I'm talking about, where he went off right tackle, yeah. busted outside, and got up the sideline. But I have no idea what his final he, stat line is. He had 53 was. yards rushing, 19 yards receiving, nine touches, 72 yards. Hey, that's fine. Against Kansas, 18 rushing, 17 receiving, and I believe yeah. that was split on carries, carries and 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 receptions. So. Um, so, so here's your thing. Like I heard the stat about him early in the season. I don't know who said it, but it was after a couple of games where he was averaging eight yards of carry in the second half. That is a shiny thing. What the heck does that mean? He's not going to be a guy that you lean on and run the ball with in the second half of games. He's not your clock killer. He's not your chain mover. He's not, he's going to come in. He's going to slash. He's going to, you know, they're good on the zone stuff. You know, the draws were really curious because these guys are good when they put their foot in the turf and they go. Draws, you got to dance around and tap your feet a little bit and find a spot and go. Singfield can do that because he's quick. He's got that burst. But I, I like him more. See it and go. Cut one time and find your alley and go. Um, but he's not a guy you're going to bang it between the tackles with and wear teams down in the second half. So, yeah, that's a cool stat. I wouldn't I wouldn't prop him up with that because that's not going to endure. And that's not what he does. Um, he's a guy that, you know, is going to make the most out of, like, nine touches and find a way to get him, like, three receptions and six carries that are good. And be happy if he gets you if he gets you eight yards on those nine touches, that's a good day. Eight yards of carry in the second half isn't realistic for him. Yeah, that was, I mean, we got to talk about sample size a lot of times with, with with sports, and and that was certainly one of them. I think that was like that was after the Baylor game, and uh, you know he had played Eastern Kentucky and had a, a couple carries in the second half and a couple carries. We're talking maybe ten carries total, and that included the two runs against Baylor. That I think went for 36 yards or 40 yards or something between the two of them. Uh, related, uh, you kind of mentioned it. Uh, so before we get to the other options at running back, but but you talked about Brown kind of tapping out for um, a sub. There were multiple questions in here and tons of comments on the board asking about Letty Brown's conditioning. And, and, you know, and then again, this was related to the sink field, like, hey, if Brown needs these subs all the time, I need to have a backup. Is is conditioning a concern for you with Brown? I mean, I have some thoughts on this, but I wanted is that is that something that caught your eye during the game? Yeah, he was probably on the edge of touches. Right. But the fact that he was I think we saw some sink field early and we saw some spells where Brown wasn't in. I think that maybe they had an, uh, an idea early on that he just didn't have the legs that day. And you could find that stuff out in warm up. So uh, is it a concern? Not not now. It hasn't happened a whole bunch. And and that's a guy who, by all accounts, has rebuilt himself. His body's different. He's a, just a different player physically. I would imagine conditioning is up there, too. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's bad when he's putting his hand up and he's tapping himself in the helmet and he needs out. Um, I'm probably more concerned the fact that, like, they I think they knew that Sinkfield wasn't going to be it against that defensive line and that defensive front. And they just didn't have a third guy. So I'm not entirely concerned about him there. I'm concerned that they don't have a third option. Um, and, and if the weather wasn't too bad, I want to say it was mid-60s. It's not like it was a, a, a September day in West Texas, so the weather was okay. But it did seem that there were players who were cramping up on both sides of that game, which was unusual. Um, so maybe there was something there, like maybe it wasn't just wind, maybe it was legs, cramps, whatever. But if that's a problem moving forward – then you're probably going to get less of Brown and more of 
alternates back there. I'm not saying it's just Hinko, but I don't know who it would be. That's that's an issue, I think. Uh, Mike, I'm sorry. Did you did you discuss the Texas the the winds in Lubbock without using the word swirling? Are you allowed to do that? Is it windy there? <laughs> Apparently, it is. Uh, <laughs> on the Brown thing, 28 touches. That's a lot of touches for a running back. Mm-hmm. 21 21 carries, seven receptions, and let's not forget this. When, when West Virginia is running this RPO stuff, they are asking him, even when he's not getting the ball, to run like he's getting the ball, get hit like he's getting the ball. So it's almost like he's getting an extra half dozen or more touches on top of that. So him asking out didn't concern me at all because I think other than the offensive line, there's nobody on that team that's you know putting in as much work. That that's being asked to do more physically, as far as physically exerting themselves yep. uh, throughout the game. So I, it never crossed my mind. I I I specifically remember it's ingrained in my head him tapping his helmet, which is the uh, universal signal for I need a sub. And so I do remember seeing that. I do remember at least one of them being at a crucial point. But we have to remember he had twenty eight touches, and then again another six, seven, eight, where he's just slamming into the line and getting hit like he had another touch. So it's not like he's not doing anything back there. Uh, and Did I'm not they, saying you were saying he was not doing anything, no, but, no. but they, uh, to answer the they, questions. They had him primed to go to uh, – I think they had him primed to go when they got that ball in the short field before the Sam James fumble. He had had two carries in about 12 or 13 minutes of game clock. And it had been a lot of – now, granted, they, the other team was on the field a bit for that. So that's okay. That means he's resting. But they had put some sink field action in there. They had had him on the field and hadn't used him. Uh, and, again, even RPO stuff, I get that. But, like – I think that there were buildings there, something for him, which means that either he was resting or they were trying to make sure they were buying the right time with him. And I think they had him ready. And that first that first carry before James, it was four yards. It was in the middle, and it looked sharp. Uh, again, what are we saying? Four-yard carry. But, like, I think that they were going to try to ride him the rest of the way. Though a screen pass didn't work. But it could have worked out in the end. You know, the, all these concerns about it, it's obvious to see. Just because you notice it doesn't mean it's a huge deal. Don't be tricked by your eyes there. Um Real quick before we move on to something else, uh, you mentioned the third back. Uh, we had a question about Tony Mathis. Uh, we haven't seen him yet Ooh, recently, like in a game. I think we saw him in Eastern Kentucky, and that was about it. Um, a very Sparrow, who was the fifth string back for that Eastern Kentucky game, got in against Kansas, as you noted, and Neil Brown confirmed uh, later that was mostly – a reward for doing a great job on scout team throughout the week. Your thoughts? I mean, I don't, do we even have enough information to go off of with these guys? No. And if it's going to be a third guy, it's going to be Mathis. Might also be Winston, right? I don't think you're going to see Winston, Wright Run traditional stuff, but I think if you're trying to like give your guys a break and you don't like Mathis yet, I think you can get by doing some smoke and mirrors with Winston, Wright, They're running quick screens and flares out of the backfield. Um, we saw that, you know, you can hand in the ball in reverses. You could give it to him on a pitch of motion. There's something you can grow from what we saw in a handful of snaps. Um, I think you're more likely to see that as a, again, a gimmicky third running back, small doses, but that's all you're going to get out of Mathis anyways. I really don't think that you want a third back with equal or even comparable carries. He could probably take a few away from Singfield. And I think that you could legitimately run the same plays of Brown and Mathis more so than Singfield. But I will say this about the, the whole running the same plays. So much of what they do is based on their eyes. 
you may run the same play with, with Singfield that you do at Brown. And Singfield may feel better and be better about bouncing outside and getting north around a tackle or a tight end. Brown may see something faster and be like, you know what? I'm Letty Brown. I can burst this in between the guard and the tackle and get to the second level and knock somebody over and turn this into a 12-yard game. It could be the same play that can just be run differently. So I get what Brown is saying there, but sometimes I think that you just can't, you can't expect your offensive line to be great on the edges against some of these defenses that are going to try to flank you out there and, and, and surround you on the edges. Matt hey, gives you a better chance there. Hey, uh, Luke, Luke, when you're, when you're listening to this podcast, uh, can you clip that last minute and a half and, and title it? Mike Zaza says Winston Wright should play running back. Back up running back. Move him. Let's put <laughs> it on there. I like it. Let's make a movement. Uh, this will be our new Sean Martin uh play and uh i think we should just 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 go with it mike go with the flow stick with it i like it i i i'm joking with that but i kind of i kind of dig that about getting right in touches as many ways as possible because he is one of those guys that you're looking at at offense right now that you can confidently say he can make a play and is it gonna be Five yards, like every time you feel like when you get Letty Brown the ball, no. But he's a guy that's going to break one. Uh, you always feel like he can get to the edge. That he's faster than a lot of the guys out there. Um, speaking of innovative offensive minds, on par with Mr. Casas over here, Jared Parker in the score zone. We had a question about that. Um, how where is? Is that I'm trying to pull it back up now. I've lost it. I've lost it, Mike. Um, now, how did I lose that already? Here, he's done a great there job calling Joe, calling plays yeah. in the score zone. Yeah, uh, from Swaggier. Do you think it is time to give him more responsibility and allow Neil to focus on more, more on game management? Um, before you answer, can you explain kind of what's going on here that for those that might not know? It's It's not clear. <laughs> let's be let's be clear on that. It's not clear. Um, I asked Jared Daigie just for a explanation about what's working well in the red zone. Going into the last game, the first team offense was 17 for 17 with 14 touchdowns in the red zone. That's incredible when you consider how bad they were last year. Um, I'm, I'm hedging like that with the first team qualification because the team was 17 for 18. Backups drove the ball down. And Evan Staley missed a field goal. So I'm not going to, I'm going to qualify that stat a little bit more. It's kind of like Neil Brown's sack adjusted rushing yardage. So three more possessions, three more touchdowns. So now you're looking at 20 straight trips with 17 touchdowns for the first team offense. Something's going good there. What is it? Well, that's after the Texas Tech game. Before the game, I asked, and he mentioned, hey, we talked, we were, talked about a lot in the offseason. We worked on it a bunch. You know, not a day went by where we didn't spend time on red zone, score zone. Score zone, I guess, is what they call the 12 and in. Interesting. Um, and you can kind of look at it when they when they get around that 10 yard line, things do change. But he also said that Jared Parker is doing a good job calling the plays. And that got my antenna up. So when Parker stepped in for his interviews, I asked, he laughed. Look at the clip. He laughs like like he was exposed. <laughs> That's the Geppetto here. And and said that, well, much love to Jared Daigie, but we all succeed in the red zone. So a non answer answer. I'll, I'll ask Brown this. Tuesday when we talked to him about what's going on down there. Are you really handing the responsibilities to a guy who's never called plays before, but maybe he's got such a good concept down there and, and he can see it and call it that it's not a bad idea. And perhaps that explains it. So our working theory based on Parker's non-denial of Daigie's revelation is that when they get down into the 20 zone, 
they're letting Parker call the plays. And again, you can look at it when it's good. It's stuff that's added into the package by graduate assistants and analysts like Ryan Nealon called the play or designed the play that got Sam James that late touchdown against Kansas. So something's going on where it's unique in there. So could he be a play caller across the field? Listen, I think that's the idea. I don't know that Brown will ever say this, but I just I just can't believe that a head coach can be in charge of all these things and be effective. I know he wants to be, and I know he's done it, but I he's got to be honest with himself. Maybe he's not the one that's goofing up clock management and game management and situational stuff. They're sharp on their fourth downs, and they're sharp on, on fakes and stuff like that, so it's not like he's incompetent there. But perhaps that he doesn't have grasp or the, the, the type of control he wants over everything. And somebody's making the mistakes that he isn't able to oversee because he's trying to do so many different things, i.e. calling plays sometimes. Um, it's a natural thing to step away from play calling. You're the head coach, you're the CEO, you got to win. And if things are slipping through the cracks and are costing your team yards and, and field positioning games, um, what do you do? You take your biggest and you give else. There's no reason Parker's here. There's no reason to believe the Parker's here to be a guy who answers questions on Tuesday. He wants to call plays. And I think there might come a point here where Brown wakes up or realizes, or maybe more importantly, more significantly, feels the time is right to hand his thing over to somebody, and it would be Jared Parker. I don't know that it's there, but I can't believe that Brown could have an honest conversation with himself and an assessment of how things are going moving forward and saying, yep, this is it without saying, you know what, I got a guy who's really good. I trust. I've known forever. I brought him here for a reason. I trust him. Let's do it, and let's make everything better. Um, my first thought is I haven't been overly, you know, concerned about the play calling in the middle of the field or before it gets to the score zone. I I mean, obviously, I think once you get closer, the, the play calling has to be different. So it never struck me that somebody else was calling it until you asked that question of Parker the other day. But – um, first off, is there is there a, is there a joke in there somewhere about how Dana Holgerson's score zone was inside the thirty and West Virginia's is now is inside the twelve? Is there a joke somewhere in there? <laughs> well, they call it the lower red too, which is technically the lower red zone. <laughs> so, so I get it, but I, I, I uh, I'm buying what you're selling there. Um, and I am if they're switching plays. And you and I talked about this, I think, before we went on the podcast um, after the game. China, not trying to out you here, but I think if if they're switching plays, I, I think there, there's a little bit of an issue. I don't like this whole switch switching and swapping plays. Again, we don't know if they're actually doing that uh, or who's calling plays mid drive every drive that you get down into the red zone, um, and you have to wonder if that was part of the reason why they had to use that timeout. And early in the third quarter against Tech, because they were at what the thirty or so when Deggy hit Winston Wright and Wright dove towards the goal line, ended up inside the two yard line, and then they got confused on the play and the lining up and everything. And you know, if this swapping of play callers is happening, then they just went from one play caller to the next on that play. And, you know, again, we're all, I'm just, we don't know. And, but you're kind of connecting the dots here and wondering, 
Is that an issue? Is that causing continuity problems for the offense? Um, apparently, it's still working. The offense is scoring really well in the red zone, better than it has in years, as you noted, Al. I mean, I mean I, and I do mean years. Um, so I don't care much for it, but I don't think I don't think Neil Brown's done bad in other like for the rest of the field. If that's what people are trying to take from you know from this, if if the operation is screwed up. And I don't even think it's there yet because these things pop up in, in patches and really isolated, but they pop up. Um, if it's bad and it's, it's a detriment, you think about it. I don't think it's there yet. I wonder this, though. What are you looking for? Are you looking for different plays? Are you looking for more tempo? Like if you're Because Parker's going to call from the same pool of plays. He's, he right. may be allowed to put some more stuff in, but he's going to – the offense is the offense, especially now. Like you're not going to add new stuff. It would be something you do between seasons, I think. And I just, I just think Brown's going to be very reluctant to do that without a ton of runway to rehearse stuff, which just isn't possible right now, too. I will say this. West Virginia's offense looks fairly generic um, to the point, like, we can call out the plays when we watch. You know, we watch a ton. Of, I get that. But guess what? Set of defensive coordinators. And you can kind of figure out when they go empty what's going to happen. You can kind of figure out when, you know, what a back motions from one side to the other. He's probably going to catch a player runner out to that side. And I thought Texas Tech covered a lot of that stuff, even though Brown had seven receptions. But they had a beat on some things. But – Nevertheless, Daigie was really good. So there are, there are layers and options of the offense that I think work conventionally. I just think that's it's fairly generic. It doesn't look too different from other, other things to the point that when you see something like 20 personnel and Winston Wright joining the backfield, you lean forward and say, oh, my gosh. There's something different. You know, this is this is a, a different flavor than we've seen, which means that capability is there. And I would not I would not pull the lever and make a switch right now. Sticking with the offense, uh, we got a couple questions about Jarrett Daigie here. Um, this one from Craig Cool. We'll start there. We'll, we're all seeing the blame on Daigie as he's not perfect. How much of everything here is really on Daigie? He does float some passes. He does miss a few, but we also know the receivers have a ton of drops. So trying to keep in mind the fact that we're a team, not causing division, et cetera, where are the majority of the issues here? I'm surprised that people are so down on Daigie after that game. I really am. We talked about this afterward, and some of the feedback I got in the post-game podcast was, man, you guys are really high on Daigie. I, I didn't think he was an issue there. I thought he was betrayed by drops. By the way, how many drops do you think pro, fo- pro football focus counted? I already know the answer, and it's utterly ridiculous. I told you, it's a it's a receiver that's doing doing this job. Or Actually, I don't even know if it's a receiver. It's, <laughs> it, it's got to be like a a cornerback, probably, that that's scouting these because they're not putting it on the quarterback. They're not putting it on the receiver. It's almost like the, the cornerbacks are all making amazing plays all the time. Yeah, so we thought between six and seven based on ESPN. Now, granted, ESPN is going to use, I thought maybe like they were using PFF stuff for season stuff. I'm told that ESPN has their own stats division, and it's called ESPN Stats. And I knew that. I don't know what I was thinking. I follow their Twitter feed. Um they just have a spotter during the game who calls stuff out and says, that's a drop, that's a drop, that's four drops, five drops. They counted seven, I believe, during the game. Pro Football Focus counted three. And that's a lot. And they had zero for Sam James, by the way. Did zero. he drop one? Yeah. See, I, know they, I know they don't have one for Ollie Jennings, and, like, I'm okay with that. Like, that was a tough catch. Like, that yeah. was the ball was on him. He had it. He was trying to pin it to his helmet again, which I don't know if that's instinct for him or not, but – and the, the defensive back came crashing and made a good play. Like, listen, the coaches say he should bag that. I get it. Me, I'm, I'm like, you know what? Next time, maybe. That's that's a tough one to ask. The, the Reese Smith one, watching it again, that was a drop. But they gave him that one. But they only gave drops to uh, Ryan, Smith, 
and was it Wheaton? Sean Ryan, I thought they didn't. I don't think they gave one. Did yeah, we did they? Well, they counted three. I'm trying to figure it out. Now. Anyways, just three, which is surprising, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah, but I <laughs> go like so. The Daggy thing. I mean, I thought he got hot. He had a bad start and he missed a couple throws, but they put some stuff in that I think worked for him. Um, and I, I he just he got in a good rhythm. I mean, he kind of inflates his totals with some of those late drives, but they still count. They they were thrown in the end zone to to win the game or tie the game, I guess. Um, so he moved the ball there. I don't. I don't think he was the issue. I just don't think it was a bad a bad deal for him. Um, mistakes, sure. Again, that, that that fourth and five play in the first quarter where he missed right. I don't know if right scores or if they score on that drive, but that should be a completion. Um, but again, he threw a touchdown pass to Sean Ryan, I think, and Ryan dropped it. That's that's going to be a, a slant and go probably, and he might run away from the defense where he's moving. So, you you count drops or balls that were least on guys. You're looking at another, I mean, conservatively, conservatively, 100 yards receiving. Yeah. Probably another touchdown, and the game probably pulls away. I thought he was much better than he was against Kansas and Baylor. And what was more significant to me was he did not start that way. He pulled himself out of it, and I don't think that they made it easier on him. I don't think they called a bunch of stuff to get him righted. I think he did that by himself. That was encouraging to me. There's, there's no way I'm making the change. If you want to run some Garrett Green stuff, Cool. Where are you gonna do it? You're gonna do it in the red zone where they're humming right now. You're not gonna put him in, you know, first drive of the second quarter. You're not gonna put him in to give the offense a jolt. I don't think. Um, Daggy's the guy. I don't, I don't know what you would do at this point or why you would do it. That was a, that was a good performance for me, and I think all the stats and analytics back it up. You're curious what Brown says. I'm, I know Daggy's gonna be hard himself, but I don't. I don't think he was bad at all in that game. I thought he was pretty good toward the the middle, the middle of that game and toward the early ending. Kind of hard to judge the last part because he had no option but to throw it. And I think the defense has kind of sit and helped him out. But up to that point, I thought he was fine. Yeah, 64% completion percentage with six or seven drops, maybe a couple others that were tough. Again, I'm with you on the Allie Jennings one. I think I mean, we even have uh, – it's one of the photos that we got from the uh, photog pool uh, that, you know, he had a guy right on him. It's tough. It did hit him in the hands. Uh, I think, you know, coach, coach might call it a drop. Um, others might not. But 64% and 347 yards and a touchdown, you take, you know, again, they showed, this, they showed the stats on ESPN and how West Virginia was one of the worst in the country with drops. You, you just make it average, say it's only like three drops. I mean, what's he sitting at? Near, near 70% completion, 400 plus yards and two touchdowns at least. Like, yep. And people are going to complain about, about him. And I think it all stems from the start. It all stems from the start because he, oh my God, he missed some throws on those mm-hmm. first couple drives, like three wide open throws. And I think a lot of people just saw that and was like, well, checking out. And my opinion on Diggy for the rest of this game is set in stone. <laughs> but it, that was it. And I think that, I think that's the biggest reason why so many people were down on him because he was, he had some terrible throws in the first two drives and then was great, really great after that. It's weird though because we talked about the battle of the scripts and that was probably a draw. By the way, that was that was a great a great pull by you. Yeah, that's some some feedback I got too from outside sources that like yeah, that was a good a good way to put it. Because listen, the best coaches do the best coaches win their games on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and they let their guys and their plans go on Saturday. That should be like that a lot. Granted, you have to make adjustments sometimes, but those adjustments are things you reference and you access from what you did Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I, again, I think they had a good plan going in, and he was he, it, it should have worked. 
Like, he looked comfortable. He hit some vertical throws. And, again, that, that ball to Winston Wright. By the way, Winston Wright had the other drop. Um, yeah. Low ball late in the, four, in the fourth quarter. But it, it, it could have worked, and he was comfortable. And, and, again, that was stuff they asked him to do. Like, hey, what do you like? And he said, listen, they play cover two. Those two safeties don't scare me. Let's run posts with our slot guys and see what we can do. And it worked. It was fun, including Sam James in the slot, which probably leads us to another question coming up, right? Yeah. Um, oh, one more. No, um, Daigie. Daigie's mm-hmm. season completion percentage is 63.8. Um, his adjusted completion percentage, 72. Shoot. Which means uh, if they're if he if guys are catching balls that he's putting on them, he's completing seventy two percent of his passes. It's not him. That's them. Real quick before we move on to the question, I think we both want to discuss a little bit here. Uh, one more thing on Deggy. We can make it as quick as you'd like to make it, or as long as you'd like to make it. From Bryson Harvey, where yeah. does Jared Deggy rank in the Big Twelve era of quarterbacks for West Virginia? It's a good question. Greer's one, right? Howard's two. Where are we? Are we counting? I mean, I know Gino was both. Again, this is how we had that all-decade thing where one guy spanned two decades. Uh, Gino kind of spanned two conferences. Yeah, but Gino went seven and six and tanked a bowl game in the Big Twelve. Point so, taken. All right, so Greer, I was Howard. Gonna, I'm putting him third. Okay. And here's where we are. Is it you have a tricket slash daggy thing and Darn it, their situations aren't parallel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the offering right now. Um, I like Trickett's moxie performance better. I think that Daigie's ceiling is higher. I think he's got a little bit more endurance. I think he's more familiar with this offense as it's supposed to be run. Tricker really had to learn. Remember, it was it was a mess his first year. And even the second year, you know, he, which he had great talent around him, better talent than Daigie does for sure. You're talking Kevin White, Mario Alford. Pretty good guys. Um, Small was in the backfield too, I believe. But he was still trying to wrap the offense around him a little bit. Daggy knows this offense. I think the potential is there for him to be better than Tricker for sure with another year under his belt. That 2013 team, that was terrible. It had the quarterback carousel. Trickett's first year where he was hit or miss. Seven, seven TDs, seven picks. Split mm-hmm. in time with Paul Millard and Ford Childress. Mario Alford, Kevin White. Dekeel Shorts, all at, all at receiver. Your running backs included three future NFLers in Charles yeah. Sims, Jamia Smith, who yeah, I think he got in the game. I know he made the Chargers roster for a while, and Wendell Smallwood, all on that team. That That is a ton, a ton of offensive talent. Now, it was not quite experienced talent, but that is a lot of talent to, to be that bad offensively. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, a lot of that was on the quarterback. And now... Granted, well, Trickett was like the third option that year, right? It started with, with Millard and then Childress and then back to Trickett. Yeah, Childress was supposed to be the guy. Like, Trickett was not supposed to be the starter, I don't think, at all. I know he's there and he has a decent career with, you know, abbreviated two seasons, but Tr- Childress was supposed to be the future. And he popped his peck and then kind of fell off the rails and never got it back together. It's just a miss, as were many, but that was the guy. Like, and he, he played against Georgia Southern, Georgia State, and lit it up. And they had seen enough of Millard in the first two games. Remember, they almost lost to William & Mary and like 16-7, to I think, against Oklahoma. They wanted to put Millard on the bench and put Childress in. They didn't think that was a good situation to debut him against Oklahoma. Hey, heat him up against Georgia State and then let him go. He looked great against Georgia State. The offense looked dynamic, vertical, pressure the ball. Um, 
And then he pops his peck on the first throw against Maryland, doesn't tell anybody, they get shut out. And here comes Trickett, and the rest is history. So your what's your official stance between Trickett and Diggy? I would take Diggy over Trickett because that extra year and the fact that I just think the flu, the offense is more fluid with him. He knows this offense for various reasons. Trickett had the capacity, obviously, to learn it and run it. But I think right now, right now, you probably put Trickett ahead just for stats okay. and performance. But I think that Diggy's going to be above them for sure. That's that's where I'm at. I think right now, if if Diggy would just hung it up and said, "I'm not playing football anymore uh, tomorrow," then I'd take Trickett. But I think with with the time that he's got, yeah, Diggy Diggy will eventually. Surpass him for fourth in the in the rankings here. These made up rankings that we got going on. Um, maybe you did, but again, splitting conferences. So I guess he can take over Gino since Gino, like you said, is only one year and seven and six. Yeah. Terrible bowl game. Um, all of that. Uh, moving on to the next question, we had a couple of them related. Uh, one of them specifically to wide receiver but one of a more generic kind of everywhere uh everywhere on the offense this one so i'm going to read this one from preston co preston county i'm assuming uh if things go south on this season any chance we see brown invest in a quote-unquote youth youth movement with the offense uh, i'll skip the rest but your thoughts no uh, i mean full-on youth movement no 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 because this team is young as it is it is. It just is. Even their older guys are young. So you're going to have a lot of these guys back. And if you bench them, <laughs> where are you starting off next year? Are you going to, because, because if those guys come in, are they going to play well? Like I'm assuming you're talking about, Hey, let's put Jordan white in. Let's let Sam Brown go. Let's play a Colia corner. I'm not sure I'm messing with the defense for one. The offense is obviously mm-hmm. what needs the infusion of, of talent and, and zest, I think, but you're putting guys in, are they going to perform well? Unlikely. And then, are you going to start those guys next year just because it's their turn and they're older? No, they didn't play very well. I just don't think you're going to do it. I think that, more importantly, who's not coming back on this offense? T.J. Simmons, who's by and large been a spectator this year. Chase Barrett, Mike Brown, and then everybody else is back, right? Yeah. I don't think that you want to do that. No. I think, like you said, who at receiver – is it really a youth movement if you're taking out redshirt sophomores and redshirt freshmen to put in more redshirt freshmen and true freshmen? Um, I'm not sure that's that that's a youth movement there. Although I do agree that of all the spots, there needs to be some a little change up at receiver. But I have a lot of, like I just don't think you can do it for a lot of reasons. You mentioned most of them, but most everybody's coming back, and two. Given that this year doesn't count toward eligibility, yeah, it's possible that some of these game reps that you're giving even to older guys might be helping them for next season for a good run for like say you know a guy that's a redshirt junior now or that might be a senior that decides to come back. So I don't think you can just ditch a guy and, and move to a, a freshman or something. And I don't think you could do that anyway. You can't you can't ditch a guy that's doing well. Mm-hmm. Period. I don't care if he's an upperclassman. Um, it'd just be a horrible look. It'd be terrible. Uh, it, it would send the wrong message to the rest of the team of, hey, I don't care how good you're doing. You know, I'm worried about me and mine and next year and keeping my job for the future. And that would send a bad message to the current team, current players. It would send a bad message on the recruiting trail. You would get eaten alive for that. It, I just don't think you can make this move. I mean, well, I, I, I get the gist of it. And yeah. yeah, I think you need to rotate in some young guys, but you just can't wholesale, wholesale switch like this. 
concerning is that that they're probably not ready either. That's the one bummer about the offseason. They're probably not ready. Um, mm-hmm. It's a credit to Frazier that he's doing what he's doing. Can he hold up? We'll see. But more importantly, where are you making the changes? You're not making a quarterback, obviously. I mean, you want Garrett Green. I don't think that's a good idea at all. Um, running back, perhaps, just to give Mathis – I don't think Sparrow's going to be there, but maybe you give Mathis a little bit of a run. Hard to call Mathis an answer right now when the problem, if you will, is Letty Brown. I don't think that makes sense. Maybe he's better than Sinkfield. I like that, but – Again, I think you can make Sinkfield. You can maximize Sinkfield without going out of control. Offensive line, you're just not doing it. Like the, your your young guys who can play on the offensive line, either are or they're guards. And right now, no one needs to be playing over Mike Brown and Chase Barron. They just don't. And you don't have young tackles, and that would be a lot to ask them. So that doesn't make sense. And it's happening at receiver. I don't know if people notice this, but they're playing a lot of people at receiver, and they're splitting the snaps up like they said they would. Um, people want a gun for Sam James and his playing time. You can ask this question, but that's happening. Defensively, that's where you can maybe make the argument. Should they be playing more cornerbacks? I guess I'm concerned about Fortune and Miller, but they haven't been an issue. I think they gave up two catches apiece last game. They did not get beat to the air. Safeties, maybe, but who's playing safety that's young? You know, it's going to be Jake Long, who I, I don't know what he did besides have the game of his life. He hasn't played since. Uh, I don't <laughs> think it's going to be Guzman, even though, I mean, you're not taking Mahone and a die out the field. Defensive line, perhaps you can get Akeem Mesador in more. Perhaps you can find a way to get Sean Martin in. I can buy that. I think you got to play more on the defensive line. Linebacker's fine for me, and you don't you just don't have the freshman linebackers that can play. They're not going to play Simmons or, or Eddie Watkins at Bandit. You know, they're not going to play Linnell Carr. Um, what's he, and or Bandit? I can't even tell. But like, He hasn't gotten in the past couple of games. Could they get him in for a couple of snaps? Possibly. But you're, you're talking a few options. You don't even have the ability, never mind the, the compulsion, to have like a full-blown youth movement here. Moving on to the final question and I'm, I'm excited about this question because it, it's a perfect way to end a Q&A mailbag where I read the Q and I don't have an A so I'm excited for it this one's from WVU fan in DC it's kind of a long question but I, I like it um, reading here okay so this is going to sound like a joke but I'm serious how should the fans feel right now I find it impossible to settle on an opinion of this team and this staff personally I believe they inherited a pretty weak roster from Dana, and I believe the pandemic has made a second-year second year progress a massive challenge. I like where recruiting is going, and I tend to believe you need to give coaching staffs time before you even think about making any firm judgments. But that loss to Texas Tech was hideous, and it comes on the heels of multiple shaky performances and a pretty rough 2019 season. It is pretty tough to get up this morning and feel good about the state of WVU football right now. Mike? Tell the fans how they should feel. That's right. I mean, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean you want wholesale changes, and it doesn't mean that you have everlasting faith in Brown. It just means that they lost to a bad Texas Tech team in the second season. That's very unusual as it is. Like, I don't know why that can't be a consensus, never mind an acceptable opinion. That's fine. Um, listen, they've lost games they shouldn't have lost this year, and and maybe not so much last year, but, like, they – they had a chance in that game, and I, I, I treat that totally different than Oklahoma State, where they had a chance. So the change is what's going to be interesting, because they have a lot of coaches who are up. Um, I don't think this defensive coordinator, whatever you want to call it, is going to be what they do moving forward. I really think that they're going to go out, and they're going to shop, and they're going to spend on a guy that they think they can target, that Brown is comfortable with, who coaches in the SEC. Um I think that's going to happen. That's I don't know if it'll be what they do, but I think that's going to be an attention of theirs, which means someone's coming in and someone's going out. It's probably Jeff Castile. 
because he was an analyst and I'm assuming this is a one year deal. It's a rental agreement. He knows that I'm sure. Um, but still, what type of faith do you put into things? People want to know about contract extensions. I think you're out of your mind if you give people a contract extension, if this doesn't end up with like seven and three, um, two years, if two years isn't enough time for him to prove himself, it's not the right amount of time to give him an extension either. Moreover, what are the finances? Can you really extend a coach right now after two seasons when he has a couple years left when you have your financial straits? They're talking about still losing $25 million, right? Um, and then how do you bring your staff back? Can you go out and spend in a defensive coordinator? Can you give guys multiple-year contracts? The answers right now are no. Will that change? Maybe. So there is a good, a good thought about running it back again. Again, there's going to be a lot of these people back if they choose to be. You might have some transfers. You might have some people who don't take that extra year of eligibility. You might have some people who go to the NFL. But by and large, you're going to have this core back. Um, I think that one thing that, that's unfair to Brown, but also kind of his own doing, he's, he's just not as good as the public relations and the goodwill wanted him to be right now. Because the bar was set so high with his very, very acceptable, high-quality welcome to town. Um, the way he does all the public front-facing stuff is great. Everybody likes him. Everybody wants him to do well except the other teams. They want to do well, too, and they want to beat him. So, like, he's having normal struggles that a lot of coaches have this year and any year. This is a very ordinary turnaround right now. It is. I'm sorry, but that's, like, this is what happens when you're trying to turn the barge around in the channel. It takes time. You're going to bump into stuff. You're going to get stuck. And I think what works against him sometimes is that everybody wants him to be so good and likes him so much and desires for it to happen fast that we forget it takes time. And they're not immune to problems that are prevalent in college football. They're happening here, and they're so hyper-focused because, one, they're repeated, and two, they're costly, and three, it's happening to someone and something that they really like repeatedly. So I think your opinion is right that, yeah, that was a bad loss. It's discouraging. It's hard to get going. But I also think that based on what you said about inheriting the roster and, and again, some of the, the progress they have to make, I think everybody thinks that their progress comes from the players who were recruited this year and in the coming class. So in some way, I'm not saying this is year zero part two and next year is year zero part three, but if your guys from the 2020 and 2021 recruiting class aren't making a mark and turning this thing around by 2022, then you got a problem. Now, does that mean we're giving him two more years carte blanche? Absolutely no, but there has to be progress toward when the rubber meets the road there, this is going in the right direction. But I just think that you can't be advocating any type of like, change here and i think that if this season interrupted momentum because the offseason and the preseason were so weird imagine how you stunt things if you bring in four new assistant coaches or if you uh you know if you can't spend on a defensive coordinator that you really like or if you just don't have that continuity or a way to replace what you lost this year i think that's really detrimental um i can't i can't say anything different there i i think you know the preston preston county there the are you the screen name the user that asked the question he started it off with this may sound like a joke it doesn't at all I, I, you said everything you said in that scenario in that kind of question slash statement is true i think i feel the same exact way when i look at it when i look at this program and what's going on things are things are going well he's done things well he's faced some obstacles but there's still questions and there's still things that need to be answered and it and kind of some of the comments you made and some of the comments i'm about to make overlap with another question that I, I did write out. I've already written out the answers. Um, a three-parter from Clarence Overe from uh, from the board, and it touched on a lot of things about what to do with hot seat, quote-unquote hot seat with Neil Brown, 
job security, contract negotiation, stuff like that. And I'm with you. I don't, in no way am I even thinking about firing Neil Brown. Not at all. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the contract is up in, uh, excuse me, that's not a but for, hey, maybe I will fire him later. But the contract is up in 2024 after the 2024 season, which means after this season, you're down to four and you know, 21, 22, 23, and 24. And that once you get into that range of four years remaining on the contract, that's when extensions talk pretty much. I don't want to say no matter what, uh, especially now, um, but recruiting starts playing a factor. Kids start asking, how do we even know if you're going to be there? You know, you, they're always asking that, but when your contract doesn't even run through their full uh, gamut of eligibility, then they're really starting to question it. So if I were an athletic director, again, not even thinking about fire. He's not even on the hot seat for me. Um, if you want to use a, a, a loose term of that, then I would consider it for how I enter contract negotiations because I would enter contract negotiations, extension negotiations after this year. I'd touch base, see what's going on, try to get an extension in there. But the way the rest of this season goes would, you know, influence how I approach those negotiations. Because if this, if this, the rest of the season doesn't end up well, then the leverage goes to West Virginia. It goes to Shane Lyons. You can negotiate an extension with less guaranteed money, fewer years, fewer salary, whatever. And if it goes well, then Neil Brown's going to enter the the you know the conversation with maybe a little bit of leverage. So hot seat, no. Effect on extension talks, yes. What's the number for Neil Brown's agent to call up Shane Lyons? Like, is it seven wins? Is it six? Yeah, I think if 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 I'm Neil Brown's agent and and Neil Brown ends up in West Virginia ends up seven and three, I'm calling up Shane Lyons and being like, "Oh, so three more years, fully guaranteed? You ready?" Does Shane so Lyons say no? Does Shane Lyons say no? If West Virginia goes seven and three, Daigie throws for thirty five hundred yards, West Virginia signs a top thirty recruiting class, and they call him up, does Shane Lyons say no? Lions publicly does not believe in extensions. There you go. However, Shane Lyons does that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think, I don't yeah. know what I don't I don't know what his favorite pitch is. I don't know if he's throwing changeups or curveballs or sliders or fastballs. And that's not. I don't think that's great when when you're that guy. But it also means that you're not you're not rigid and your negotiations can happen. So, you know, he's capitulated on some things. For example, did not want to do multi-year contracts for assistant coaches. He does that now. Um, did not want to do, did not believe in extensions, gave one to Holgerson. But that was actually, that was just like, hey, you're, <laughs> we have to give you, you won 10 games. Like, we have to. So he was kind of painted into a corner there. Um, but then again, did not budge last time he and Holgerson sat right. down at the table. I don't know what you get from that dude when you're when you're at the table with him. But, we do know that he does not want to do extensions. And if Brown is a, let's see, seven and three, you said he would be two games over 500 top 30 class. Everybody coming back. Listen, he's got a black hole financially right now. He's got to fix that fundraising is down big before the pandemic hit. He's got to fix that. And how do you do it? You whip up excitement about that. If that means that you fall back on your, your public stance before who cares, 
your job is that you have a fiscal responsibility and you do it. So if that's a seven win team in a bowl game, I guess everybody's bowl eligible, right? right. I forgot to mention that good news, bowl eligible despite the loss. Uh, yeah, you do it. I just think you do it. Um, and, and how many years you do it, what you do for your assistant coach, just, I don't know. I also don't know if they can. I don't know if he's going to let him do that. I don't know if the BOG is going to let him do that. I don't know what number they'll allow, what the bookkeeping says is, is reasonable. And if that's going to be a big enough number for Brown's agent, I don't know, but, uh, six wins without a bowl game, if they go six and five, I'd have a hard time doing it. Um, I would say, listen, let's see what you do next year and have a conversation and go forward. The other part about this too, and this is something that, that I know lines things cause he's told people and he's hinted at it before too, but, um, Part of the job is recruiting when you don't have four years on your contract. And if a kid has problems or concerns or curiosities about whether or not you're going to be there, it's not because the AD is because you haven't done your job as a coach. Ultimately, it comes down to you. And if a kid says, I don't know, man, four years is a long time. Are you going to be there? I don't know. Am I? I don't know if I can win. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if you I don't know if you want a part of this. That's not the right answer. There's better answers than that on the recruiting trail. Um, so that's, that's not really, that's Lyon's concern. That's not his responsibility. I like it. That man spoken like a true, uh, university executive, Mike, that's what you sound like. Not a, not a coach, a university exec. I see. That'll never happen. That'll never happen. (laughs) I promise you that. (laughs) That's right up your alley. Come on. Well, not here at least. Yeah. Uh, um, any other questions that you saw? I mean, again, I, I'll, I'll answer all of these in written form. I've already got most of them done. going to finish up the rest of them, post them later today. But were there any others, Mike, that uh, caught your fancy? There's just one about Sam James. Okay. And I thought, again, he's going to get the, the brunt of that for the fumble. Um, and I get that. There's two other guys who just bail on blocks. And, and that, that puts him in trouble. It's the problem that causes the problem. But everybody's saying, hey, play him less, play him less. Guys, he's playing less. He's lost half his snaps. And none of that, they had him playing slot the majority of the game. Um, I, I'll get into that for some things to look at for um, a story either today or tomorrow. But, like, it's happening. Like, they're they're making him pay with playing time. And he's an outside receiver who's playing the slot. That might be better for him. That might have been a way to get him going. You know, maybe some easier stuff where he's open. He doesn't have to worry about fighting the cornerback. Again, he got shut down by Radarius Williams and other corners are not scared of Sam James right now. So, hey, line up against a nickel or a linebacker. We talked about how bad the, the coverage was for those linebackers on Texas Tech, and they, they were having a hard time with that nickel back position. Maybe that was a good matchup for Sam James. He was doing okay before that drop. It wasn't lighting the world on fire, but he was not going to go from frigid to fire. They were going to have to warm him up and let him go. And maybe that was happening before the fumble. But it also might be that T.J. Simmons was out and didn't play, and they liked him there more so than Reese Smith, uh, Isaiah Esdale, uh, obviously, Wright was in there too, but perhaps it was a one-game thing, or for however long Simmons is out. But if you're saying, "Hey, sick of this, can't let him play and make these mistakes," it's not happening. They're cutting into his playing time. He's playing a different position now. They put Sean Ryan out there, which wasn't a great thing. We'll see what happens now. They they have to do some some faith, confidence, restoration with him. Obviously, they did it before, and it did it work. Didn't it work? I don't know. I thought he was okay, and he's just the victim of of a major error at the worst possible time. That certainly conspired to cost his team a game, but it's not gone off the coach's radar. It's not out of their vision. They're, they're actively working on this. Uh, it's happening. They're playing a lot of receivers, and they've cut into his playing time. Trouble is, did you notice that? No, and that's because Ollie Jennings, Sean Ryan, Sam Brown have not been exemplary in replacement roles. So is James the problem? Right, maybe. But is the solution the problem? 
might also be that too. Yeah, it, uh, I think that was my answer to one of the other questions that that in the mailbag. It's you take out one guy who's dropping the ball, drops the ball, and then another guy drops the ball. So what what is the next step? What are the other options? I mean, you're going down. People were asking me about switching David Vincent to Nicoli. I don't the guy that hasn't dressed or traveled with the team yet. Uh, he's a cornerback. So he's not going to switch sides of the field and suddenly come in and, and break into the rotation at receiver. Um, Devil Washington, I think, is an interesting one. Neil Brown's already mentioned him during uh, during a couple of his radio shows for his performance on scout team. There are some things that he does not do well. Uh, he is not shifty. He is not somebody that's going to be shifty. He's not some guy that's going to make you miss in space and, and, and go. But he's big. He does well in the vertical game. And he has big hands that catch the ball. Do you know a team that could use a receiver like that, Mike? I can think of one. I can think of one too. And so I think, you know, maybe he's somebody that you consider down the road. I have no idea how he's practicing other than what Neil Brown has said publicly, which is that, you know, he, he's doing well on scout team. So I think that's somebody that you might hear a little more about as the season goes on. Uh, one more thing on the Sam James. Did you notice? It, or I know you noticed, but which which do you think this is? After the game, when discussing that play, the first thing that Neil Brown talked about the the play being Sam James's fumble. The first thing he talked about was not Sam James's fumble. The blocks. It was, it was two wide receiver. He said he said we missed two blocks out in front of him, and hardly mentioned really the fumble or holding onto the ball or that being Sam James's quote unquote fault. He talked about it being the very first thing, and he kind of put the emphasis on those on those blocks. Is that just a coach's view of things, or was that protecting James? You think? Uh, I mean, they they didn't block. Oh, they, it was terrible. It was terrible. he was surrounded. He was surrounded pretty quickly. And again, like I think we mentioned this. Um, like if if you see Sam James, what are you thinking of? Ball security. You're gonna rip it out, and that that wasn't like a hold him up and rip it out. I think a guy flew by and punched it. Right? Yeah, it was quick. It was. That's a guy who should have been blocked. He should have been blocked. He shouldn't have been there. And that was uh, Esdale and Ford Wheaton out there on those. Um, How many snap? I mean, how many snaps did Esdale play in that game? It couldn't five. Five. He he played five snaps, and one of them was on the most important drive of the game, and whiffed on the block that resulted in the biggest play of the game. Best dance in the team. I've had people tell me that a bunch. And again, he, he catches when you throw it to him. He just doesn't get in the field. It, he hasn't been with them for, for since like day one. I don't know what the deal is, but that's that, that's maybe a reason why. Is he, is he reliable in all the spots? There's your answer. Well, whoa. I'm about knocked over my microphone there, Mike. I was so mm-hmm. excited to get, to hop off this podcast now. Um, brief. I, again. Huh? It's brief again. Brief. Have we not been talking that long? An hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> we the can't people stop want it. talking. We can't stop talking. We got to wrap it up. Let's do it. Um, back again Friday with the preview podcast, all that stuff um, as normal. Plenty going on today, tomorrow. Neil Brown on the conference call today with the Big 12. He has a Zoom news conference tomorrow with assistant coaches and players and then all the other shenanigans that follow during the week. And I'll have updates on... Uh, some recruiting news coming up, a couple new offers. There's a new a new story up on the board just now, went up this morning on a new offer in Michigan. Um, 
Again, we'll hop up with questions from Tim Fitzgerald of our Kansas State site, gopowercat.com. And I will have the rest of the answers to all your other questions from this mailbag in written form and posted later this afternoon. All right. Well, until then, stay tuned. Lots happen and we'll cover it all. We'll be back on Friday. Until then, I'm Mike Casazza. And I'm Chris Anderson. We will talk to you later.